Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 146, recorded on February 23rd, 2020. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you. And I got to say, I just barely made it. I was so busy installing the new Linux Defender from Microsoft. Yeah, they've announced a public preview of Microsoft Defender Advanced Threat Protection Antivirus for Linux. What? Finally. Finally. Now I can finally browse the web on my Linux box. I've been waiting. <laughs> okay, I might be joking a little bit. I, I actually have not installed this because it's not its not for me. It's not for you, Joe. It's for the enterprise. They write, we are aiming to protect the modern workplace environment across everything that is being Microsoft or non-Microsoft. We are protecting endpoints across Mac, and today we're extending this endpoint to protect Linux and iOS, and Android. So the idea is they are selling the concept of end-to-end device protection, regardless of its OS, all feeding sensor data, shared sensor data, back to this Microsoft protection system, which is going to be part of Microsoft Threat Protection Suite, MTP, which is a bundle of services. Now, I know this is a lot, But how Microsoft is talking about this is like next level. It makes Norton antivirus look like your grandparents' antivirus. They write on the Microsoft blog, this is artificially intelligence-powered, sensors all over the place, designed to stop attacks from spreading and auto-healing impacted assets. And they write one more that I just loved. (laughs) Coordinated defense to uncover the full attack kill chain can help block nation-state-level attacks. So this is nation-state antivirus level here. That's pretty good, Joe. (laughs) Yeah, and it all ties into Azure as well, obviously. The way Microsoft are talking about this, they want to just control the whole antivirus security sector in enterprise. And they want ATP to be that box that you check on your compliance form. And I think that it's genius. I think that this really goes to show what a good CEO Satya Nadella is. This is a strategy to stay relevant in the enterprise over the next 10 or 15 years, while Windows on the desktop becomes less relevant and Windows Server becomes less relevant. And as the market changes, they're going to still be in the enterprise. Their salespeople will use that Microsoft name and they will stay relevant and stay making a ton of money. As we talk about this, I am of two clear minds which are very much in conflict with each other. There's the version of me that wants to sit here and and just yell how this is totally unnecessary. It's going to be a major impact on your performance. It's likely invasive in some way because of the amount of information needs to collect to do this job properly. But then there's the enterprise, Chris, that knows that this means more people can now run Linux on their desktops because they can be compliant with corporate requirements and, as you just alluded to, often audit policies that they're held to which is a really big deal. It's a make or breaker. So if it means no Linux for some companies. This change could now mean employees have an option they didn't have before. On that hand, I'm like, wow, that's great. And I can also see Microsoft's pitch here. If we have sensors on all of the endpoints, iOS, Android, Windows, Linux, and on your servers, and on your cloud servers then we're collecting all of that. We're using our training to analyze it and identify threats and then automatically shutting down services or blocking access proactively while alerting you. And only Microsoft can do it because only Microsoft has it across this entire range of devices and services. 
if I feel like software like that or a service like that is essential to my business, that's a pretty compelling argument. I would be drawn to that. Now, there's that other side of me that's like screaming right now at how I would never want anything like this. Uh, but that's often the case for things that are designed for the enterprise. Well, yeah, I don't want anything to do with this, but I can see it being massively successful. This bundling of security products that Microsoft has will be rolled out in various different ways to existing subscribers to some of the Office 365 products, as well as others. But speaking of services, we have an update on one of Mozilla's much-talked-about services. Yeah, their VPN service, which is still invitation-only and costs $4.99 per month, now has an Android app. As a reminder to everyone out there, the Firefox Private Network VPN is powered by Molvad VPN, and they make claims on their website, which I just went through again this morning, that they do not log and monitor user data. And here's something else that's kind of interesting. They're using WireGuard for the back-end connectivity. So this may end up being one of the largest commercial deployments of WireGuard to date. Now, be aware at this point, they do not have as many WireGuard servers as they do OpenVPN servers. As of this recording, they have... 169 WireGuard servers distributed throughout the world, so it's still a pretty good amount. But the Android app for the Firefox private network is using WireGuard to connect back to Molvad, and they're wrapping it up in a pretty nice-to-use package that supports the Mozilla Corporation. $4.99 per month isn't bad, because when I looked into Molvad, they seem like they check out. Like, obviously, I don't have access to their logs and stuff, so I can't make full claims, but a lot of what they use, they have contributed back upstream, and their own code that they've written, they've open-sourced and posted on their GitHub. And I went through a lot of it, and it it looks really good. They seem at least solid to me. Like, Mozilla has made a good choice as outwardly as you can judge these kind of things. And $4.99 doesn't seem outrageous, does it? That seems to be about the going rate for a VPN service, at least a decent one. True that. And WireGuard may actually be a little more performant than OpenVPN, so you may be able to argue this is one of the faster VPN services for Android. I wouldn't mind if the industry as a whole tapped the old brakes on the whole VPN thing, because it's a product that's sold in various different ways, often using scare tactics, sometimes proclaiming ways to pirate content and bypass region restrictions, which all of that feels a little gray area to me. But additionally, it's advocating for consolidating user traffic, which ultimately makes it more vulnerable to attack than having it distributed <laughs> all over the place from people's local networks. Um, so I'm, I kind of just, I want us to think really carefully and be sure that when people are choosing VPN providers, they're really looking into them because there's a lot of flashy ones out there that make it really easy to one-click VPN. Now, maybe that's a good thing for average users, but maybe we're running a risk of consolidating traffic and actually making people more vulnerable in the long term. What do I know? We'll have to just wait and see. At least this one here seems legit, and it seems like they have a really easy-to-use implementation. Those two combinations hopefully will be a success for them. Did you see that video that Tom Scott made about VPNs about a month ago, maybe, talking about some of the claims that they make and how HTTPS really does solve a lot of the problems that they claim they're solving with VPNs. No, no, I'll have to look that up. Yeah, it's a good video. I didn't learn a huge amount, but I think that he put it in very simple terms that non-techie people can understand, so it's, it's worth a watch. While we're still talking about VPNs, we should mention that private internet access is planning to open source their Android app. Yeah, the process has started, and they've open-sourced some of the dependencies, and it's going to be happening shortly, according to their blog. And it's part of an overall strategy to open source 
everything they possibly can, which I think in this day and age of, like you say, some of the VPN providers seeming a bit shady, I think it's it's good PR for them to have it all be open source. Yeah, absolutely. And I suspect that's why iVPN got in on it as well. They're open sourcing their applications for Android, macOS, iOS, and Windows under the GPL3. And it does give me more confidence. Now, I don't still fully have a view into how they handle logs, and I'd be curious to see who's going to step forward on that. I don't even know how you would do that, how you could be publicly responsible and publicly prove that you're not logging. Maybe somebody clever will think of it. Well, private internet access talk about having random audits, so that's one solution, at least for now. Yeah, I can see that. And then I suppose it's just a matter of how you communicate the results and follow up if there's something found, I guess. Well, let's talk about turning it up to 11, Joe. <laughs> Get ready for that joke to be made for about a year. Yeah, this is the first developer preview of Android 11. And this is unusual for them in that they're calling it Android 11. It used to be the letter of the dessert, but since they've dropped that, I suppose they're not doing that anymore, so it's just Android 11 developer preview. I think I like it now. I think I, I, think I prefer this. It's just simpler. And... A little, a little more serious, I guess. Android 11 has a whole bunch of changes, as you would expect. There's probably the most noticeable change in the notification area where they're going to have a dedicated conversations section in the UI. So there'll be a top level of your notification shade where you'll find ongoing conversations with quick ways to reply. Additionally, you're going to love this, Joe. They're making an OS-wide API for message and chat bubbles. So you can have chat bubbles all over your OS. I'm sure you'll love that. It doesn't make sense on a small phone screen, but I suppose on some of the big foldables that they're also now supporting, that kind of makes sense, maybe. Yeah, yeah, and it felt like a tablet, too. Back in the day when I had Android on a tablet and I had a Samsung, it kind of worked, but um, I don't know. On a small, I want my phone smaller, so I'm just, those kinds of things I'm not super stoked about. I am... Really happy to see improvements in notifications, and I'm happy to see the one-time permission dialog box come to Android. So if you've used iOS before, you'd know this one. You launch an app for the first time. It says, hey, this app wants access to your location. Do you want to only allow it this time? Do you want to allow it only when you're using the app or just totally deny it? That's going to now be the modal dialog that comes up in Android 11 when you launch an application. Similar things for not just location, but also your microphone and your camera. And with those, which is kind of a neat trick, you can now grant temporary one-time access, which didn't exist before in Android, which has existed in iOS, and it's something that I think is the just right amount. I'm trying out an app one time. I have no idea if this thing's bogus or not. Only allow it this once, and then proceed. I think that's a great option, and it's nice to see that evolve over the last couple of Android releases. Yeah, that's a standout feature to me. I think it's needed that for quite some time, and it may not be original, but who cares? It's a great feature. I thought you were going to say scheduled dark theme. Yeah, that's pretty cool, but I just have a dark theme all the time anyway, so yeah. I, d- I don't really want to schedule that. No, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Also, some new UI stuff around setting options for Do Not Disturb and whatnot. It doesn't seem to me like it's a blow-away release, but it appears there's just enough security tweaks that they've had to provide some backwards compatibility options for Android developers that aren't ready to totally modernize and 11 their app that they can throw in their code to let Android 11 know that they haven't got up to snuff yet and not abuse them as bad. 
I'll be curious to see if that works out, and I'll be curious to see if app developers even bother updating their apps with that flag in there, <laughs> because a lot of times the new releases get neglected for so long that even something as simple as that often gets overlooked or adding support for a notch or, or whatever. But maybe, maybe those things are finally starting to shift on the old Android. Maybe. One thing, I'm not sure if this is in iOS, but something that's going to be really useful for me is when you put the phone into airplane mode, it doesn't disconnect Bluetooth by default, which used to sting me a lot when I would go into the tube, the underground trains here in London, where we have no service down there, no signal. And so you either just leave it not on airplane mode and drain your battery, or you have to pause your podcast, put it in airplane mode, re-enable Bluetooth, hear the ding, and then start playing again. And now you won't have to do that on the tube or on airplanes. Fascinating. Interesting. So yeah, iOS did roll that out about the time the Apple Watch came out. Because guess what? People were buying their Apple Watches, turning off their Bluetooth, and then all of a sudden their watch that was totally dependent on a phone was dumb. (laughs) So, And their AirPods would quit working. You know, these Apple users were not happy about it. So what iOS does is when you get to the control panel and you toggle off Bluetooth there, it disconnects most devices, but not certain devices like your watch, your headphones, things like that. If you go into the settings app, you go into the actual settings and go into the Bluetooth settings where you'd see all your pairings and stuff like that. And if you turn it off there, it actually completely turns off Bluetooth. All right. I don't know how I feel about it not killing all the radios, though. It is a convenient feature, but I like the fact that with airplane mode, you just toggle it and that's it. It's totally disconnected, in theory at least. Yeah, well, this when Apple made this change, I think it was probably one of the bigger upsets about that release of the OS. People were shocked by it, and it was, it was a story. So I wouldn't be surprised if it isn't a little... Although Android 11 will probably roll out so slow that I, I doubt it'll be... It probably won't hit as hard. Yeah, I mean, I'm still stuck on Android 9 with my old lineage release. So I'll probably get 10 around the time that 11 comes out. But they have now enabled screen recording from the kind of pull-down menu. Uh, There's been a screen recorder built into Lineage for quite some time, but it's not as easy as it will be on Android 11. So that's quite nice, I think. Expect to see more screen caps hitting Twitter in a feed near you. That's what I see people using their iOS device for. They'll like write notes, or you won't believe what just happened, and they'll screen record them recording or something. Uh, and then they post it on Twitter. And I always, it's always such a funny way to like get a, a longer message across. So you might start seeing that. It's a nice feature, though, when you're just trying to explain to somebody, like, go here, tap this, and then select this item. You can just now flip that down, hit record, you do the action really quick, and then in two seconds you can send it off to somebody over a message. Yeah, and it's just what the world needs, more vertical videos out there. <laughs> Well, despite the JavaScript package repository, NPM's best efforts, they have yet to find a way to fully fund open source development. The ambitions were high, and so far, the deliveries have been low. Yeah, this is starting to irk people now, because originally, NPM had promised to launch an open source funding platform by the end of 2019. Well, here we are in late February, and all they've managed to do is add the fund command. Yeah, they talked big. The plan was to really create a platform to fund all of these dependencies and and make it worth people's time, at least, to contribute to the NPM repository. In fact, NPM Inc.'s co-founder and CTO, back when they announced it, said, quote, the problem we're solving is open source projects need funding, and there are very few ways people can do that and get that information in front of people using their code. 
But like so many great ambitions, things can shift and change. Uh, I think you have to mention in this conversation that NPM went through a major change recently. Their CEO left, and that's kind of a big shift. There was a leadership shuffle in general, and the register contacted individuals at NPM like uh, Darcy Clark, who suggested that this is just a reaction of company initiatives being reevaluated, roadmaps getting adjusted, and priorities changing. They had one plan. Then new leadership comes in, and now their plans have changed. And it's not that they're abandoning this, but they're obviously taking a lot slower approach. And I think you can kind of see that, Joe, in a phone call that the CTO and co-founder had with the register. He says, ecosystems that are sustainable won't happen overnight. A platform is a collection of features people use. We're continuing to work on this. I don't think anything has changed, but we're making steady progress and engaging with the community. I can appreciate that some folks, the progress might seem a little lackluster. (laughs) (laughs) And then he continues, funding open source projects is still a very big problem, and it's it's still a very unsolved problem. And I wonder if they haven't had a leadership change and they didn't come in and think, you know, this is a big problem and we're not going to solve it. It's not our core competency. Let's scale this initiative back a little bit. Yeah, that seems to be exactly what they've done here. It's a really hard position for NPM that is dependent on a vibrant community that they really have to be careful how they interact with that community because they don't want to upset them and demotivate people from participating and creating code that makes their platform more valuable. At the same time, while they're making commitments, their leadership is changing. And so they go out and say one thing, and then things change after that. And now they're kind of held to what they committed to, but held to the expectations of the new leadership. It's a really difficult spot for the staff that have to interact with that community. I hope leadership is able to appreciate that for them. Well, as an aside, this story made me think about the Linux Foundation and Harvard Labs report that came out that is attempting to quantify some of the most popular, in terms of usage, open source software, and maybe identify better practices they could follow. It's it's a doozy, Joe. This had a focus on JavaScript and frameworks and that side of open source. And the most popular and most widely used pieces of open source software are things that you wouldn't necessarily have heard of. Yeah, it's all the little bits that make the bigger things run. This is actually the second census they have done. Census 1 looked at system packages specifically for Debian to get a sense of how popular packages there are, assuming that other distros base off Debian, you kind of get a a baseline. This second census that was run by a different group in the Linux Foundation wanted to look more at language-level packages. Their report discusses some of the challenges in that things are not named consistently, so it's hard to talk about them. Um, And they also talk about how, like you just said, Joe, a lot of these little pieces of interdependency packages that people create don't really have the same level of eyes or auditing or even maybe even quality that you'd want in a production system. This isn't necessarily new news, but the report is attempting to actually quantify what that is. Like, what are they? What are the top 10, at least? And and then this is just a first pass, the intention being to get a baseline to figure out what they can't quite get a hold of, what they can't figure out, and then take another pass at this again later. This all comes back to Heartbleed, the OpenSSL bug that was discovered in April of 2014, so nearly six years ago at this point. And shortly after that, the core infrastructure initiative was established. And the aim was to stop something like that happening again. Well, nearly six years later, 
we're not any closer, really, it seems, to avoiding the next Heartblade. This doesn't really get us there. The Linux Foundation writes on their site, the report begins to give us an inventory of the most important shared software and potential vulnerabilities and is the first step to understand more about these projects so we can create tools and standards that result in trust and transparency in software. The argument the report makes is that free software now contributes to 80-90% of what runs the world. Even when you look at large commercial applications and services, Underneath them is a bunch of little individual open source components and free software components. And so their thinking here is they want to make this something that businesses can rely on. Like all of a sudden it's become a big deal. It's really important. It went from hobby software that people are scratching an itch to something that people are seriously using in business. And according to the census that they conducted, most of the people that contribute full-time to open source are doing so under a large corporation like Intel or Microsoft, or Red Hat, or others. This seems to be them establishing processes around this and realizing that you can't just kind of randomly look at software and decide what you're going to put your efforts into. You need to have a process of looking at what's most widely used and, and divert your resources appropriately, which is the kind of standard big business way to do things, which is kind of where the Linux Foundation fits into this whole ecosystem. Because of just that, I think this is particularly vulnerable to foundation scope creep here. They're advocating in this consensus that all open source developers get on a big old Zoom call, I'm being facetious, they don't actually advocate that part, and come to a kumbaya on all naming schemes. And this is critical, Joe. The Linux Foundation believes that until one exists, quote, strategies for software security, transparency, and more will have a limited effect. Organizations will remain categorically unable to communicate with each other because of all the silly names that silly open source developers choose. Well, they do have something of a point, don't they? Yeah, but there's something of a point of having some fun. It's, it's kind of like coming into a group that says, hey guys, um, you know this entire open source software ecosystem that you've built over the last 20 years that now even by our own report says you run 80 to 90% of the world's software? You've been doing it wrong. I agree. Could it be better? Could it be simpler? And we're, I, I grant you here, we're not talking about distribution names. We're talking about names of libraries, names of NPM packages here. Well, what they're trying to do is solve a fundamental problem here. And I think we all agree that that problem is there. Heartbleed shows you that. So there has to be some way of solving it. If you've got a fundamental problem, then you maybe need a fundamental rethink of how it all works. And open source software may be successful, but it has this flaw in it that a lot of that older code just never gets looked at. So this is where I say foundation creep is very possible because when you start talking about things like how people name their software, you really start having to come up with a pretty big solution to that problem. And that's where the creep potential really comes in. Yeah, I think that this is somewhat overambitious, but I can't say that I have a better solution for the problem. You know, ultimately, I think the tone of the report and then also ZDNet's take on it sort of has me upset because it's it's it seems like they're talking down to these developers who have contributed their time and their energy and years of their life into building software that Jeff Bezos and others can get super rich off. Here's a line from the ZDNet article that really got me fired up. Quote, in short, open source developers must start addressing the problems of legacy software. Maintaining code is never as much fun as developing new code, but it's necessary work, says blogger who's never written a line of code. I think it completely dismisses 
all of the hard work that so many open source developers do out of a labor of love, not because they want to backport fixes and and software, but because their users need it. It is a huge part of what our distributions and upstream software projects spend a significant amount of resources on is maintaining old software that people don't want to leave. It's where a disproportionate amount of energy goes towards instead of creating new software. And it completely dismisses all of the effort that they do. Could it be better? Yes. Especially in some of these NPM repos and things that are distributed amongst many, many applications that end up, oops, big vulnerability in there. Obviously, we have the data that shows it could be better. But this kind of whole tone throughout the report and throughout ZDNet's article, it treats open source developers like they're kids playing with their toys and it's time for them to grow up and get serious. Meanwhile, at the same time, saying they're responsible for contributing to all of this ecosystem that's made so much money. It's like they're complimenting and telling them they've changed the world at the same time telling them that they're, they're not serious and that they're, they're not adults. I, I really just don't like the tone of it. And I think that's my core problem with the way the Linux Foundation is approaching all of this. I encourage anyone to go look at the link we'll have in the show notes for the Linux Foundation's official announcement about this. Go ahead and have a read of that and tell me about how that's going to inspire more people to get into free software and open source. It's a boilerplate piece of PR. I see where you're coming from here. It does feel as if it's coming from people who don't necessarily have that experience of actually writing open source software. And maybe a better approach would be to put together a panel maybe of developers who have got a proven track record within the industry. Maybe that would be a better approach to this. I think that would be a good way to go. Because ultimately what we want out of this is code to be developed for free software and open source that patches security vulnerabilities and leaves people confident in the software. That's the ultimate goal. Well, at the complete other end of the spectrum from the Linux Foundation is the GNU project, and it appears to be business as usual for them. Yeah, and that's in light of the social contract we'd mentioned a couple of episodes ago that was submitted by the community, reviewed and modified, and then presented for contributors to agree upon, and uh, they decided, um, no, (laughs) we're going to just do business as usual. Thanks for the idea, though, guys. I don't know if you remember, Joe, but we went through that contract here on the air and um, it stated the the four freedoms. It stated their goal of creating free software and uh, said that anyone was allowed to participate. That was the near totality of the social contract. Yeah, and the deadline for either accepting or rejecting that was Monday the 24th. It's nearly Monday the 24th when we're recording this and it seems that instead of accepting or rejecting it, they've just ignored it. Stallman is just saying, I'm the chief gnosis. And I decide what happens. And it's just a reiteration, just writing down what has been the almost unspoken hierarchy before that he just calls all the shots. Well, this surely is resolved now. We can just file that one away as everyone has made their statements and I'm sure it won't come up again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we'll see about that. Well, we keep track of that and all of the other stories in Linux and open source, so why not get every single episode? Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get those. And you can go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. Well, if you want something just a little extra, check out extras.show slash 57. Brent has brunch with Heather Ellsworth from Canonical, and it was a fascinating chat. Yeah, well worth a listen. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later.